Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Once a month, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I have the privilege of introducing you to a sermon by a great preacher, past or present, contemporary or in the past. Well, this week, it's one of the greatest preachers of the last 100 years for sure, the Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor. Now, just this year, on Easter Sunday, Dr. Taylor went home to heaven. Uh, He would have been 97 years old right now. Uh, His ministry is legendary. For 42 years, he served as the pastor of the great Concord Baptist Church of Christ in Brooklyn, New York. And when I was a student at Harvard Divinity School many, many years ago, Dr. Taylor came once a week and taught lectures on preaching to those of us who gathered in Divinity Chapel. So I'll never forget the impact he had on my life. He came to Beeson Divinity School and inaugurated our William E. Conger, Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. That's why we're going to hear Dr. Smith as a sermon Dr. Taylor preached right here at Beeson, the very first of our Conger Lectures. Can you introduce us to it? Yes, sir, Dean George. This message is based upon John 14 and 8. It's an upper room um, experience. And as Jesus is carrying out the Lord's Supper, Philip asked Jesus after three years, Lord, show us the Father, and uh, it will suffice us. And Gardner Taylor said that there were two interruptions in the upper room, and basically Jesus turned the interruptions into opportunities. There was Thomas's question, Lord, we don't know the way you're going. Show us the way. Jesus is patient and responded, I am the way. And Thomas asked, show us the Father. And Jesus responded, and said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he shows us that ministry has to be an opportunity to turn interruptions into a ministry opportunity to advance the knowledge of people. His language, as you know, Dean George, uh, is a language of precision. Uh, there is an economy of words, never a wasted words, wasted word, and yet his words have kind of a imagistic um, flavor. Uh, for instance, he says there is a shadow over the upper room in which Jesus is holding the Lord's Supper. It takes the form of a cross. You can see that. His motifs in his preaching, not only this sermon, but this is characteristic of his whole preaching ministry. He is going to gospelize the social and not socialize the gospel. So he'll bring up um, things like the Plessy decision of 1896, separate but equal, prophetic. He's acquainted with the history of preaching. So he's going to bring up Alexander McLaren and other past masters of preaching. He's a familiar with that, very familiar with black history. Um, he is going to talk about, without uh, necessarily filling the sermon with his own personal experience, what it must be like, and that Tom, that uh, Philip really had a legitimate question, Lord, show us the Father, we'd be satisfied, because there are times in which he suggests that God seems to be absent, and we need to ask, where are you, God? Show us the Father. And of course, 
the Father is sufficient to present himself and to give us faith at those times. His personal experiences is crucial here, and he shares from various uh, anecdotes in his life, particularly one in which he went to Tasmania and preached at the church of F.W. Borum and, and closes with a letter he received, which is based upon Christ titled One Solitary Life, mm. a moving, riveting, convicting, experiential, and very biblical. You know, uh, Dr. Smith, you and I had the privilege a few years ago, along with our dear friend, Dr. James Earl Massey, of editing a volume of essays in honor of Gardner Taylor and presented to him on his 95th birthday entitled, Our Sufficiency is of God. Dr. Taylor always preaches with pathos, with eloquence, and with passion. And they all come together in this sermon he preached here at Beeson. Let's listen. Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, the very first of our William E. Conger Jr. lectures on biblical preaching. I think you would want me at the outset, on behalf of all of you and for myself, to thank this choir for this marvelous music which they have lavished upon our spirits this evening. John Porter with a choir like this has a a passing gear. (laughs) I do count it a great honor to have the privilege of being a part of this initial uh, lectureship, Conga lectureship. And I've had the honor of sitting with Colonel and Mrs. Conga and of knowing something of the rich legacy which has made this possible. I'm grateful to my friend John Porter for those kind words. His son directs this music here. Um, It was the second nicest introduction I've ever had. The first one occurred one night years ago in Omaha. The man who was scheduled to do it refused to do so. (laughs) The rumor was he was jealous of his reputation, but I never investigated that. But anyway, he refused to do it, and I did it myself. I could wish that he had not been so specific by about the number of years and all of that. I get more growing more and more sensitive about that. (laughs) One of our athletes said the other week that uh, age is just a number. I've got news for him. (laughs) But I'm not going into that kind of thing. But I will give you a definition of of how you can tell when you're old, if you want that tonight. You're old when on your birthday the uh, candles cost more than the cake. <laughs> or when the cake can't hold the candles up. <laughs> I mustn't get into that. I did hear of a minister who said to a man getting along in years, said, you know, you are pretty far along now. You ought to think about the hereafter. You ought to think, begin thinking about the hereafter. 
man said, I think about it all the time. Said, Every time I go from one room to the other, I ask myself, what am I here after? <laughs> As we enter and go deeper into Lent, our minds cannot help being gripped more and more, and in ways we cannot explain, by our Lord's passion. And it is a human request and a divine reply set in the atmosphere that leads up to Calvary, which we meet in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John at the 8th and 9th verses. And let me seek my footing in the word of God now. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. The, when you enter the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, you realize at the outset that you have come into a different atmosphere. There's a sharp change in climate. McLaren called it the holy of holies of our Lord's conversations. There is a, a sense of foreboding. You catch it, a kind of taut, tense. Apprehensiveness fills the room. The supper is over. The Lord Jesus and his friends sit, talk. These who have been with him sense that they have come to a great dividing time. Judas has slunk out to consummate his awful treachery and Jesus speaks in an intimate way to them. They sense a note of valedictory. Oh, he's spoken about that kind of thing before but never so pointedly and so poignantly as that evening. Shadow is over the room. Does it take the form of a cross? He comes to those words in the 14th chapter which have rallied how many generations and how many centuries of people wading through the coldest and most Testing waters. Let not your heart be troubled. 
in my own family, that passage is always read when someone has gone. And during my years in the Concord congregation, whenever we brought our dead into the sanctuary, those words were uttered, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms, how tender. In that conversation, Jesus is interrupted twice. Have you ever, have you ever been about something that was to your own mind and heart at least momentous, crucial? And someone broke in up with a kind of irrelevant, inane comment, disconnected. You felt like saying, for heaven's sake, shut up. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to call these interruptions in aim, but our Lord deals so patiently with them. First, he says, and the way I go, you know, you know. And Thomas, who always liked his gossip, used to say, to have his feet on solid ground whenever he could, said, no, sir. We do not know where you go, and how can we know the way? How patiently Jesus stops and deals with him, I am the way. He starts again, and Philip interrupts again. Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. I take my place with Philip. This is the pivotal question of our whole human existence. Sometimes we are able to sense the divine presence. The hours in worship, when heaven seems to come down our souls to greet in glory, crowns the mercy seat but not always. There are high moments in the circle of our families when heaven seems so close to us and God so real. Pity the soul who has never, if there be one, experienced that. A sense of the ineffable presence of Almighty God. But sometimes, it is not so. Of course, often we miss opportunities to, to sense and to participate in the presence of God because he offers his mercies and his blessings, how shall I put it so, I don't want to say timidly, but so politely, so unassumingly, that we are likely to take them and miss the hand that offers them. And sometimes we have to look behind the facade of what looks like ordinary event. Colonel Conger was talking about public affairs as well as private. Our friend Thurgood, Justice Thurgood Marshall, 
went to his eternal home but the other week. Faithful vestryman in St. Philip's Church when he lived in New York and later in Washington. I remember 40-odd years ago sitting in a company with very good Marshall Felton Clark, who was president of Southern University then, J.K. Haynes, who was president of the State Teachers Association, the leaders of that state. I had no business really there. I guess they included me so that immaturity would have some place in that kind of thing. But I remember on the 16th floor of the Louisiana State Capitol, we, the argument was raging, or not raging, but it was intense about equalizing educational opportunities in Louisiana. Five, four or five hours. I won't go into the details of that discussion, but many people did not realize when they looked at the monumental work of Thurgood Marshall how God's hand moved in that whole era. In 1896, in the state of my birth, a man named Plessy, about whom we know hardly anything, got on a railway coach in the sawmill town of Bogalusa. He was ejected. The court case went to litigation. Finally, the doctrine of separate but equal was fastened upon this entire section of the land and de jure in actuality upon all the land, but, but specifically in this region. Now, separate, of course, was introduced because of certain social aims and economic ones. The word equal uh, was a euphemism. introduced to take some of the sting out of separate and to at least give some kind of nodding gesture in the direction of the great documents of the land and of the American idea, for that matter, as I have called it. But those who wrote that did not realize that the moment they wrote equal, they signed the death warrant of separate. I first heard Mordecai Johnson of Howard University. Let me talk to you a bit tonight. I first heard Mordecai Johnson use a word which came into my vocabulary through him, insuperable. He said, trying to maintain equal educational facilities on the South placed an insuperable burden. I can still see him an insuperable burden upon the South. Behind Thurgood Marshall, and I see God in all of this, you see, a man named Charles Houston in Washington who went to Howard, no, went up to one of the New England schools, Bates, finally came back and because of a difficult experience decided to enter law, fastened upon the idea of equal. And it was the attack, not upon separate, but upon equal, which by God's grace toppled that whole pattern, and here we are tonight. God does move.
in mysterious ways. And those who wrote equal never dreamt that separate would have to go because they included equal. In our own lives, sometimes we can see God, but other times we cry out and all we seem to hear is the hollow echo of our own voices ringing against a brassy and indifferent sky. There seems to be no God anywhere. And we take, I take my place with Philip. Show us the Father. Are we in this alone? Our longings? Our dreams? Our deepest desires? Our affections? The affections of our family circle? Are they all at the mercy of something that cares nothing about us? My heart is pained and distressed, and out of the depths, de profundis, I call, is there some air that hears? Show us the Father. Jesus stops again. So kind, so patient. I like, I perhaps could presume upon this, but I like the way he says, Philip. As for me, I know all of these doctrines of deism and of the God who wound the clock and then left it alone and of Sotar or Sotas or the idea of a philosopher who sits and looks down upon it all. I need a God who knows my name. Where I live, my down sitting, my uprisings, who understands my thoughts are far off, who knows when I've tried and failed in my trying, when I feel all miserable and ashamed because I have been disloyal to something decent in me, I need a God who knows the anguish of my spirit. Show us! Jesus speaks the most startling words somebody said, McLaren, I guess, ever uttered in human history. Who else but Jesus could have said that? He who has seen me has seen the Father. There are no human lips upon which those words would not seem like utter blasphemy. If, uh, if not um, the... the um, the wild, incohate uh, ramblings of a demented mind. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I know of no other leader of religion, no other prophet who has ever so pointed to himself. And yet, when Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, the word seems so appropriate, so in place, so in order. You have seen me, have seen the Father. And it is true. Charles Lamb and a friend and some friends sat in a London coffee house one night, and finally Lamb said to them about Jesus, he said, if Shakespeare or some of the other greats, Cromwell or some of the others, 
were, if one of them was, were to come here to our table, we would stand to greet him with respect. We would. But if Jesus physically came, we would not stand to greet him. We would instinctively bow down. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I say unto you tonight, Christian people, we have in him all the God we need. No, I have not seen God, but I have in the pages of the New Testament and in the witness of my own heart, I have been in the presence of Jesus Christ. And in him, I know God goes about doing good. In him, I know God heals the sick and raises the dead. In him, I know God is attentive to our deepest needs, makes common cause with the brokenness of our humanity, is willing to enter the fray where we sweat and tire and sicken and bleed and die. It has been more than 30 years ago I preached across the face of the Commonwealth of Australia. I remember a Sunday morning preaching in Hobart in Tasmania. It was the Baptist Tabernacle. It was the pulpit of that had been earlier of that legendary Australian preacher F.W. Borum. I remember now there was a railing leading up into the pulpit because Borum had lost a leg early in life and they had, the people of that church had put that banister there so he could make his way up. What a marvelous preacher he was with great gifts for finding divine things in what other people call very ordinary circumstances. I remember preaching that night, that Sunday, the sermon was carried across the land on Australian radio. When I got to Melbourne or Sydney, I forget which, there was a letter waiting for me. I had tried to hold up the name of Jesus. And I preach you. Never forget to call that name. It has about it a great and moving power. I tried to call that name that Sunday. I have found that letter. The handwriting suggested it was a, a woman who wrote it. And she reported to me in that letter something she had read. I don't know where she got it, but she spoke about our Lord in such wonderful terms. She said, the letter said, he was born in poverty. But wise men, and wise they were, brought their riches and laid them at his feet. He was born a helpless infant. But his word spoke whirling planets into their fiery orbit, and upon the integrity of his command, the pillars of the universe stood sustained. She said, he never wrote a book, but the libraries of the world cannot contain the books that have been written about him. He never composed a piece of music, but the Geniuses of melody, the purest geniuses of melody, have brought the brightest of their talents and laid them humbly at his feet. And the letter went on to say, 
that Herod could not kill him. Sin could not resist him. The waves could not withstand him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. Oh, what a great Savior we have. And how his people ought to rejoice and find gladness in remembering that we are part of Jesus Christ. Light for our darkness. Strength for our weakness. Peace for our confusion. Food for our hunger. Water for our thirst. Morning for our midnight. Light for our darkness. Life for our death. We used to sing a hymn, and with it I bid you good evening. Jesus is all the world to me. He is my life, my joy, my hope, my joy, my life. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. Thanks be to God. We have seen the Father. We have seen the Father in the face of our Savior. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.